Hello everyone and welcome to the Manacast, conversations about a vision of life that is truly good news for us, for our neighbours and for the world. My name is Jacob Garrett and with me as usual is Jonathan Cornford. Manacast is the podcast of Managum, an organisation devoted to the integration of Christian faith with economics and ecology. Today I'm talking to you from Wurundjeri Land in Melbourne in Victoria. And I'm speaking to you from Jarjawarung land in Bendigo, Central Victoria. And for our Icelandic listeners, that puts us both at the bottom southeast corner of this con- continent. <laughs> That's right. Very close in global terms. Uh, we'd like to acknowledge these peoples as the traditional custodians of these lands, and we pay our respects to the elders past and present. Today on the Manacast, we're talking about the church. It's a big topic and one that can carry a lot of baggage and hurt for many people. It's also a topic not as obviously in the scope of Managum's work as many others. So on this episode, we'll begin to unpack some of these things as we discuss the meaning and role of the church in Christian life. Many things we might talk about today could easily be the subject of a whole podcast or perhaps even a whole podcast show. And maybe they will be someday, at least get their own episode. But today's goal, then, is simply to open that conversation. So, John, why is it important that Managum even talk about the church? What does the church have to do with economics and ecology? Hmm. Well, to some extent, Jacob, it's it's the elephant in the room, really. Uh, so, uh, for those who have been listening to Manicast or who have been reading Manamatters, you know that... Um, Managum's message is all about reclaiming what Christianity has to say around material life, how we live in relation to the world of economics and stuff and how that relates to the natural world, to ecology, uh, and reclaiming the really the profound uh, wealth of riches we find in the Christian gospel in relation to those things and how that applies uh, so urgently to the world in which we live in. Uh, and a lot of people are finding a lot of uh, and hope and vigor in that message, but a continual obstacle and blockage for people, whether they uh, explicitly state it or not, for very many people is uh, the church. Uh, so it's a we've all it's commonly said thing. A lot of people say, you know, I, I really like Jesus, and and uh, maybe even I really like what's in the Bible, uh, but. Uh, I can't come at the church. Uh, it's mm. uh, it's something that's just a bridge too far for me. Um, uh, and in different ways, that's a, a pretty common sentiment. And there's lots of people who have been hurt by the church, or um, or just uh, really can't accept what it is. Uh, and so there are reasons bound up for reasons of history there, and reasons of theology, and. To a large extent, I have a lot of sympathy with that. Uh, so I've, uh, I share a lot of the frustrations uh, uh, about the church and all the things we're going to talk about. But, and here's the big but, we just cannot escape the fact that the Christian gospel is essentially, in its essence, it's a message about community. It's a communal gospel. So right at the heart of Christianity is the message that we're being drawn together to others. Uh, And that's really uh, 
the subject area of the church. Uh, and so we have to we have to confront it one way or another sooner or later. If we're talking about Christianity and the Christian message, we have to uh, confront this issue of the church. So, yeah, I think we need to try and come to terms with uh, our current experience of the church. We need to try and understand it and we need to try and uh, and rediscover new, hopeful and inspiring ways of thinking about the church. Oh, no worries. We should be able to knock that out in 50 minutes. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Uh, so, I mean, let me just let me just kick this off uh, personally, just from a, a personal position. I said I, I, I share a bit of um, a, a sympathy for people who, who find the church uh, a barrier or a blockage uh, to Christian faith. Uh, so I, I grew up in the church. Uh, my father was uh, a minister and um, we, so this is uh, in my teenage years in North Queensland and it was, you know, I guess, uh, you know, existed in a fairly, I guess you'd say, mainstream evangelical church world. Uh, and that was, you know, a really formative time for me uh, in that mainstream evangelical church. Later on, as many uh, teenagers do, I moved on to a, a charismatic church. But some really important uh, and and life-shaping experiences and formation in Christian faith at that time. But also at the very same time, the, whole, the more I really... Um, really became uh, enamoured with Jesus and fell in love with Jesus. The more uh, looking at the church, uh, it be, it seemed what a pallid reflection of the life of of Jesus I, I saw in in the churches I went to. Not just and and sometimes not even a pallid reflection, an ab, a contradiction. Uh, so even even as a teenager, I could see that, and that took a number of things. You know, I was pretty. Uh, keyed into social justice issues even back then so I was around stuff like that but also it was even just around the um the urgency by which people held and expressed their faith or you know uh, to my adolescent mind it it seemed as if the church was dead um hmm. and you know I as a as a teenager there's probably a lot I didn't see beneath the surface uh, uh but there was probably still some some truth to that I would say so ever since then, I, I've had a, both a position uh, in relation to the church of one of of it being a place where I've drank really deeply in terms of uh, worship and learning and fellowship continually throughout my life, but also it's been a place of constant frustration and sometimes red hot red hot anger even in mm. relation to what I see in the church and, and happening in in it. So that's my 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 story in relation to the church. But what about you, Jacob? Yeah, there's a lot of similarity, I think, in, in a number of those threads you've drawn. Uh, I also grew up going to church, um, perhaps not weekly. My, my family wasn't always the best at getting there on time. Um, but yeah, we th we went fairly regularly and to a uh, yeah mainstream evangelical church in Melbourne. I grew up in Melbourne and... I guess in that sense, I've never really known otherwise. And perhaps that that was insulating for a certain time. And then I, yeah, also in teenage years or a bit earlier, sometime around adolescence, started to have a lot of questions and a lot of concerns, a lot of doubts. And um, yeah, just about whether this was all true and whether it was all 
uh, going the right direction. And as I got older, I also encountered more people who had uh, different experiences of the church to mine um, and started seeing those things as well, both in my church and elsewhere in the Christian, wider Christian world, and started thinking, well, if this is legit, like, why is it so wayward or why is it so off or why is it so, uh, why is the difference seemingly being made in people's lives so minimal? Uh, but I think like you touched on the drawing together perhaps is uh, a tension point for me that as soon as you get lots of people together, you get all those tensions. And so experiencing just the the not so good parts of yes. imperfect humans interacting with one another and feeling like, well, it shouldn't be this way in a community defined by God. Yeah. Um, but it is. So how, how do I really reconcile that with my idea of this being actually God's community? If it doesn't seem to reflect him. And then also I think it was part and parcel with my own uh, struggles with faith in general um, that, the less I was certain about the truth of Christianity, the even even less certain I was about the the goodness or value of this community um, that seemed to fall short even from the possibility of the goodness um, there. And I guess both for Christians and non-Christians in my life, the church has been a struggle. Like I think it's not it's not a simple those outside the church have an issue with it, but those inside the church are, are completely fine with it. I've got yes. many non-Christian friends who have issues, but also Christian friends in the church that struggle to go to church or struggle to find a community that fits them mm. or where they feel welcomed, perhaps because of their past experiences with Christian fellowship, but also just the way they feel themselves to be experienced in that community now. Um, everything from growing up with quite an oppressive um, almost cult-like experience of Christianity yep. to concerns over race or um, anything to do with identity that the church is only for certain people and really just pushes that agenda and excludes everybody else. All of those things have come up in one way or another mm. uh, so far in my experience of the church. And it's not all resolved. I still have difficulty sometimes in Christian community and still definitely feel that anger or that frustration that you mentioned as well. Yeah. 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 I'd like to find the person for whom it's all resolved. That would be nice to see. So, um, look, we're, we're going to be, you know, really opening this up a bit and laying it out in line. Um, what's our problem with the church and, and how do we begin to move past it? But one of the things we, we, we probably need to do before, moving on is start is just to clarify a little bit uh what we even mean by uh, when we're talking about the church uh in in quotation marks um because it's just a habit and people all do it all the time both christians and non-christians talk about this thing called the church as if there is a thing out there called the church but actually if you if you look um just if you're a sociologist and you're looking at looking for something called the church, you're not going to find it. Actually, there's a whole bunch of groups and institutions out there who share a lot in common. They share some sort of common heritage in Christian faith and common Christian symbols and, 
and common relationship to things like the Bible and the symbol of the cross and some hopefully some common points of uh, theology, but there are all sorts of other huge uh, differences between them uh, to the extent that, you know, in recent history, we've seen uh, we've seen in the States most vividly, um, you know, churches uh, fully uh, it supporting and taking part in the Black Lives, Latter, Black Lives Matter movement. And then we've seen other churches fully supporting and taking part in things like the invasion of the Capitol in Washington. And the differences between them are so stark. We have, you, you begin to question, could they, could they possibly be talked about in the same breath? Um, now, that's not a question I'm going to try to answer, but it just just points to the sort of breadth of of what we're talking about here when we just use a, a offhand uh, way, something called the church. Uh, sociologically and historically, there's a whole bunch of diverse different groups and institutions. So if we are talking about something called the church, then that has to be more something more like a theological statement, actually, because it's not something we can actually just see easily uh, out there. Um, but that's something we'll come to later. So, you know, we we, we see that particularly, uh, you know, with a whole bunch of different denominations. So, uh, and that's been especially the case since the Reformation. So there are a number of different church institutions that have, uh, that have each in their own way claimed to hang on to something essential to Christianity and see a lack in their, in the other denominations, um, and then within denominations, we have, uh, well, you have denominational structures, but then you have local churches. And it's often a question, you know, where do, where do we see the church? Is it in the denominational structure and or is it actually in the congregations? Uh, and then if you look at congregations, where do we see the church? Is it the building or, as is usually said, people want to affirm that it's the communities uh, that meet within those buildings. But we struggle to actually... Uh, to separate it from the building. And then there's a whole bunch of, of groups, uh, non-formal, non-institutional uh, meetings of Christians uh, that are sometimes called church and sometimes not. Uh, we have the, the house church or the home church movement and all sorts of other different gatherings, some of which think of themselves as church, some of them don't. So, um, it's a mess, basically. That that's that's the whole breadth of what we're talking mm. about. Trying to gather when when we just use this term, the church, uh, it's covering all of that. Uh, uh, so we we need to uh, to try and I guess pull it apart a bit and try and be clear what it is we're talking about at any given time. Whether we're talking about uh, the historical different bits of institutions uh, that uh, we've seen through history, or whether we're we're talking theologically about something that we're called to in the Christian faith. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful distinction. And perhaps most of us, when we say the church, or especially if we're talking about problems we have with the church, we're probably not thinking theologically. We're, we're thinking of our particular encounter or idea of this institution normally, um, which, yeah, I think those divisions is a big reason uh, for me as well, like you look through history and you think there are Christians fighting other Christians and yes. killing other Christians over their different theological positions. And you think, how could this be 
the the true community of faith in a god who is love or you've got uh which people bring up witch hunts or galileo as these like or the spanish inquisition as these real hardline institutional power using it against people like dogmatism all these kinds of things or you've got the crusades and colonialism when there's this sort of conquest side that the church Mm. is perhaps seen to have endorsed uh like all those divisions i think just add to that picture of a mess that how could you how could you think that that thing whatever it is is worth being part of and then perhaps more recently um we've had all the horrible things that have come out about child abuse in the church in various denominations not just one um we've had constant conversations about sexism in leadership and what the position of women particularly in the church and in leadership is and all sorts of heated argument over that you've got divisiveness around the lgbtqi community and whether they're included whether they're not included and how christians express themselves over those sorts of Mm. uh questions yeah and like one perhaps that's more obviously in the scope of Managum is just like, what's the church's position on climate change and the ecological crisis? Um, different, different churches are very divided over yes. that. Some see it as irrelevant and some see it as central and everything in between. And yeah, I think that sense of mess perhaps really encapsulates it quite well <laughs> um, yeah it can be quite overwhelming and yes feel quite burdensome even to to go to church when you've got when you're holding all that in your head uh but how do we begin to make sense of that mess or can we make sense of that mess is there anything of hope to be recovered or any inspiration to take from uh the history of the church and the reality of the church Yes, it, I agree. It does. It does at times feel overwhelming, and, and you know, I have to confess, there are still times when I feel like I'm shaking the dust of my feet and walking away from the whole thing. But but I can't. I can't because it's it's so critical. Um, hmm. uh, yes, uh, I think there are some hopeful things we can say. Uh, there's so. I mean, the first thing we have to say is we have to acknowledge all of that stuff. There there is just no hope in denial. But we can't find hope by denying reality. And those things are real. Or, or, I mean, they're all complex things, but they're all real things that are part of the church's history. And we, we can't uh, ignore that they're there. Uh, we, we get nowhere by denying them. Uh, and in fact, we need, to, we need to learn the lessons of history. Uh, so we need to understand some extent to how they've come about. Uh, because what ultimately what we need is some form of repentance so you know we, we we you can see that in a very particular sense in in relation to the whole child sexual abuse institutional mm. sexual abuse uh, we've had to churches have had to learn what went wrong there and they have to learn from them and and hopefully uh, i think you know again i've been frustrated at times about how slow they have been in coming to it different uh church bodies but what they're bit by bit learning that they actually have to repent of something deeply uh, and there's some deep lessons that have to be learned if we want to make sure this sort of thing doesn't happen again and i think that applies to all all the things that happened uh, through history the church's relationship to colonialism uh, it's uh, how it's treated minorities all sorts of things Uh, uh, so we need to 
to look into them uh, and try it. So the, uh, the two things I think that that we need to do is we that are really helpful. Uh, the first is to understand a little bit of our history of, of Christian history, and and that's uh, and that has two parts to it as well. So that is firstly to understand how some of this uh, really messed up stuff has has come about, um, because it didn't just come from nowhere. Uh, there was progressions of things by that's that uh, ended up with us in this place. Uh, but the second uh, side of that coin is its flip side is there's actually a lot of really positive and inspiring stuff in the history of the church, which is unfortunately much less well known. And that has to mm. do with something of the, the temperature of the times that we live in. Uh, people don't tend to know much about that sort of thing, but there's a lot to be re- reclaimed there, um, which is um, is really inspiring. So we need to reclaim and understand the history a bit, but we also need to, uh, I think, more than anything, to revisit uh, what the New Testament has to say about this thing that it calls the church, the ecclesia in in the Greek, and and get to the re understand what it's the heart of its vision and its calling there. Um, yeah, so I think that's the challenges in front of us. Yeah, cool. Just as like a, obviously we can't get into it right now in, in full depth, but in terms of that history and those, those turning points, so those, um, those points at which the church perhaps went wayward or the pressures on it to, to, uh, conform to the world or anything like that, however we might want to put it, what do you see as some of those key movements that perhaps we need to understand or examine perhaps in future episodes? Mm. Yeah, uh, look, there's obviously a lot that we could talk about. I, I think there's there's four really helpful uh, points in Christian history, I think, which explain a lot about where we are now. Uh, for what I, I think of as four major turnings in Christian history, where there is in some way a significant turn away from the heart of the Christian gospel. Never totally, never fully. Um, but in significant ways, uh, uh, a turning. And so the first of those, I think, happened quite early on. Uh, and in roughly around about the second and third, began to happen in the second and third centuries AD, in the time of the early church. Uh, and that was the, uh, as Christianity became more of a Hellenistic, moved from Judaism into uh, the Greek world, uh, and influenced by Hellenistic culture, uh, the growing influence of uh, the Platonic philosophy—that's the philosophy of Plato and all his uh, the philosophers that came after him—and uh, uh, that so the, the the huge difference between Platonism and the Hebrew worldview is that uh, Platonism made a radical distinction between uh, the world of matter and spirit. Uh, and it really saw uh, the world of matter as something of a of a debased world, really, a world of corruption, and the world of the spirit is a, a, which is really the world of ideas and the abstract and ideals as the only pure place. And it was so it was captured by this vision of uh, escaping material life to some extent. Mm, and we see that even in today of like the idea that you go to heaven and it's this sort of cloudy realm where you exist in this pure spirit form 
And it's just, that's not what the Bible's talking about. Exactly. So the, the, so the biblical vision uh, is always one that he, of, of the integration of uh, the material world and the spiritual world. And heaven and earth come together in the final visions uh, of, of the Bible. Uh, so there, there's a, there was, that had a major impact on how we just think about things like what's the purpose of Christian life. And it, it too easily became to go to heaven when you die which is not what the New Testament's about. Um, so that's had had an ongoing huge impact on Christianity. I, I, I should say not all impact of Platonism was negative. There has been some positive things that have Christian theologians have taken from it. But on the whole, I think it's safe to say that its larger in, influence has been negative. Mm, and some of our sort of greatest theologians in history have been or at least had sympathy towards Platonism, like yeah. St. Augustine as probably the big one in there. Yeah, yes, uh, he, he was uh, shaped by it, but lived in tension with it to some extent. Mm. And there's, there are some, um, some important theologians today who would, by and large, consider themselves Platonists still in one sense or another. So we don't want to discount it entirely, that, uh, but uh, on the whole, in the, the big schemes of human history, it's tended to have this negative influence on how Christians understand their faith, uh, which is different from the way the Bible uh, speaks of it. The second really big turning uh, that came in Christian history also happened quite early on, and it was a very specific one, happened in the 4th century, and it happened when the Roman Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity, which sounds like a great thing, and I don't want to write it off uh, his conversion as as a bad thing, but it, but the that began the process by which uh, by the end of the fourth century Christianity had become the official religion of the Roman Empire. Uh, so it gone from being an outlawed and marginal and persecuted religion to being by the end of the fourth century, uh, if you wanted to be anyone in the Roman Empire, you needed to be Christian. Uh, so. That that changed Christianity hugely. It's the thing that really uh, actually begins that more than thousand year project that we call Christendom. Uh, that is really uh, where we actually the the very thing that we call Europe is born out of Christendom. Um, and actually, there's an enormous amount of good that came out of Christendom that we still draw on today. Some core ideas of that we we see as fundamental to you know our, our understanding of the world and humanity and so on came out of Christendom uh, so I don't want to set make uh, as some people do see Christendom as a, as a dirty word however again once again we just can't get away from the fact that some core things changed in Christianity when when it became the official religion of power uh, and the two big ones were was the relationship of the church to to violence and to wealth changed radically. So up until the time of Constantine, uh, uh, the Christian church had been characterized as a pacifist movement in the strongest of terms uh, and willing to pay a very high cost uh, to renounce violence. And it had been characterized as a movement of that uh, perhaps that renounced wealth in its strongest forms, but was really a, 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 a faith that was based around economic community, the prof profound forms of sharing economic and material life, uh, and which 
uh, the idea of status in wealth and special privilege from wealth uh, was rejected. And all that went through. So with uh, with uh, when Christianity became um, the official religion of the Roman uh, Empire, then wealth was embraced uh, and became once again a status symbol within faith. And so we see bishops and popes accruing vast wealth and starting to display fine robes and all of that sort of thing. Uh, and we see them... Uh, wielding the sword, willing to use coercion and violence to get their way in the world. And that also mm. um, was a major change for Christianity. And that's and that still lives with us in the mindset of Christians today. We have not gotten over those things yet, uh, even though we're no, no longer, we don't exist in a country in which Christianity is now the official religion. Christians are still struggled to... Uh, separate their mindset from one a presumption of they're entitled to wealth and and that's a good thing and two uh, that we should be able to get our own way that we should be able to use the powers of state to get the things that uh, make the world the way that we sh- uh, we sh- see it should be mm, and you also see the length of that shadow cast amongst non-christians as well perhaps that like and christians as well that there's this critique that the church is far too wealthy, you know, you've got all this embellished church and gold and and just ridiculous amounts of wealth and perhaps land and everything like that, as well as that marriage to power, like that re- rears its ugly head again when it comes to things like child abuse in the church and just yes. like this kind yeah. of ability to cover things up and ability to to do its own thing in its own way. Yes. People are very, and I think often rightly suspicious of that yes. marriage between church and power. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even a child can see the, the contradiction between uh, who Jesus was and the way, uh, what Jesus taught and the way he acted in the world and uh, the way a wealth characterized by wealth and power has behaved. It's, you don't have to be a theologian to see that. Mm. But then, uh, like, I guess many people in my Christian tradition might see the Reformation as this point where the church literally tried to reform itself and and turned away from all these sort of perceived excesses and and wayward practices of, like, popes going to battle and things like that <laughs> and, yes. and, and attempted to return to what we sometimes idealize as the pure form of Christianity in the early church, even though perhaps we know even from New Testament documents, that it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. Um, you've got divisions and you've got uh, complicit with the world and you've got all kinds of things going on there as well. Is the Reformation really that point where it starts coming good again or is it more complex than that? It's Unfortunately, it's more complex from that. So yes, I would want to say I'm, I'm uh, a Protestant. So yes, I would want to say a lot of good was achieved in the reformation and that was happened for some really important reasons for some right reasons however um the historical record shows there were a whole lot of unintended uh consequences that came in with with the reformation which were often really you know not things that people like luther or calvin who were really instigators of the reformation that they could ever have envisaged would have happened um so uh, two of the, the the big ones that that came in uh, is really, and this it took a couple of centuries to to work its way through the um, from really from you know the fifteen hundreds to by the end of uh, to the seventeen hundreds uh, was the 
the really the 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 growth of what you might we might call religious or spiritual individualism. So one of the things that the Reformation did was to cut the ties to estab- the established authority in Rome, and in doing so, it immediately threw up a position. Well, who is our authority? Uh, and mm. we have all these new contestations of authority. And in the end, again and again, because it's a was ultimately a movement of conscience. Again and again, the the the, the final answer was the final authority is me. Uh, I am. Uh, it's my conscience, uh, and as that works its way through a couple of centuries of tumultuous times and wars and events and uh, expanding, it's also the period where we see uh, the the growth of what we call capitalism in Europe. Uh, so all of that works its way through to a Christianity becoming more and more an individualized uh, faith, which with the the influence of Platonism is easily spiritualized, so it's disconnected from material life. Uh, and uh, I am the arbiter of my own conscience, uh, and it's it's fundamentally about me. It's not no longer become about a social vision or a communal vision of of Christianity. And it seems like it seems like that sort of divisiveness, that kind of conscience protest, like Protestant Protestant, uh, like is a is a fair criticism from. Uh, Catholic and Orthodox positions of of our tradition that like you guys are always just rebelling against the next power or the next position, always, always splitting, just dividing, that, dividing, dividing. That's right. So I mean, once you had the 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 the, the main split from the the Roman Catholic Church, then Protestantism almost immediately fractured into a thousand little bits, uh, mm. uh, and you know that the old joke was you know if you have um, uh, one Dutch Calvinist, you have a priest. If you have two Dutch Calvinists, you have a church. And if you have three Dutch Calvinists, you have a schism. Uh, <laughs> which, you know, to be fair to that, it wasn't just a Dutch Calvinist. It was no. most Protestant groups, but that's how the joke went. So, uh, you know, that was, and that's by and large being the story of Protestantism. Yeah. yeah. Uh, look, the other uh, other really un- unintended and unfortunate consequence of the Reformation was it tended because the Roman Catholic Church was essentially a supranational organization that sat above nations. That is, in, in its own theology, it sat above the authority of kings. Uh, once you got rid of that, churches actually were placed in a much more tricky position in relation to their local rulers, in relation, so we saw up with the others, classic cases at the Anglican Church in uh, in in England, which was created by fiat of King Henry VIII and largely mm. to serve his purposes. Uh, doesn't write the Anglican Church. There is a lot of good in that um, in the birth of the Anglican Church as well, but it placed it in this subordinate relationship to the nation state. So churches often found themselves in European Christian uh, churches uh, actually wedded to the program of their nation state as well. And we see that happening uh, in wars. And then uh, where that turns into a really, that what is my fourth big turning of Christianity, we see that played out in the expansion of European imperialism, where the imperialism mm. of the nation state and of European economies is accompanied uh, and often and at times at its worst points cheered on and supported by the imperialism of of churches who have been tied to the 
what those various uh, nation states are doing out in the world from you know roughly the 1600s right through to the uh, the early 20th century. Mm, yeah, and there's just like there's a lot of complexity in that history, and it, I don't know if your impression is the same, but it seems like whether we're talking about the classics of the witch hunts or Galileo or the Spanish Inquisition or even the Crusades, or whether we're talking about that kind of Reformation stuff and Henry Henry's relationship to the church. Yes. Uh, there's some there's some really fair criticisms and there's some good suspicion in there and and some good like anger and and sense of injustice and and sense that it's not right but it's often we've t- we've taken this quite simplistic narrative of some of those things and perhaps in future episodes we might dig into whether that narrative is is quite the the full picture Yes, I think that's a really good uh, thing to to bring up, Jacob, because I think in one sense, um, I mean, what we're doing to some extent is acknowledging the critique of the church from its history that is uh, current in in most people's minds. And it is, to a large extent, it's true that all that stuff happened. Um, However, it's it's never been the full truth. And there is uh, particularly a very... uh, most of us, Christian or non-Christian, have inherited a, what is or we might call a very secularized version of the history of, of Christendom, where basically, you know, prior to the Enlightenment and even the, the name mm. of that in the 18th century, when uh, when by, you know, European standards, uh, we actually became enlightened, which was meant when we did away with religion. Uh, mm. Prior to that, you know, all that religious stuff was just superstitious mumbo jumbo, and look how bad the world was. Uh, and then after the Enlightenment, everything gets better. We have progress, uh, and it's not just scientific progress; it's moral progress. And that's mm. and that's infected the way history has been written since then and told. And most of us have bought into that. Um, and you know, they, they, there's a lot of truth to the critiques, but there's more to it than that. So, virtually all of the things are. Uh, that the the go-to points, whether it be witch hunts or Galileo or the Spanish Inquisition, there's actually a lot more to those stories. They're much more complex than people understand. Um, You and I were having a chat the other day about Galileo and actually how misrepresented that story usually is in in people's minds. And Mm. actually, who is the... um, who plays the role of the of, of having a fundamentalist dogmatic faith and who has the, the more flexible position who's looking to the uh, more empirical standards. Um, anyway, we, we can't open that up. But, <laughs> um, but just to signal uh, that actually um, there's more to the history than most people uh, have been told. Uh, and, 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 you know, there, there is a lot to be recovered and a lot of complexity and nuance as well. So, you know, uh, you know, I tried to say that in Christendom, although it's something we there's a lot to be critical of, actually, there was an enormous amount of good that happened uh, that was achieved in what we might call the Christendom project, if you like, as well. Mm. Mm. Yeah, this this sort of theme, it seems like it's emerging that it's, it's not all one way, regardless yes. of what that one way is. The church is definitely not all good, but uh, perhaps it's too easy to see it as all bad or all suspect at the very least. Absolutely. In fact, that's, I think, what we want to say. It has never been all bad. And and maybe that's where we'll start to turn in that direction a bit more now. Yeah. So, like, 
we've hinted at the idea that the church is more a theological category, at least if we're using the church capital T, capital C, um, and that the New Testament has a lot to say about it. Can you begin to, just in our final minutes of this podcast, can you begin to give us that sort of sketch of where we might take an idea of the church and begin building on that foundation? Yeah, uh, look, um, yeah, let, let, let's, uh, so there's a lot to talk about, but I think we can say some pretty core things, I think, reasonably simply. Uh, and I, I think the first really simple thing to point out, uh, which n- many um, theologians and historians have pointed out, is that Jesus did not leave behind a book and he did not leave behind a creed, uh, nor did he leave behind a written code, a way of, of, of conduct. Uh, but what he left behind actually was a community. That was mm. so, so when the resurrected Jesus, Jesus departed from the earth, what was left was a community of people, and at that stage, a very frightened and confused community of people mm. left to tell his story yeah. and to figure it out. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, uh, and that is so significant uh, because in, in, in chronologically speaking, the community of faith precedes the New Testament. So the New Testament is actually a product. It is, uh, it comes from a community of faith that pre-existed it. Uh, so if we want to point to the, the how foundational the church is, to use that word, uh, to Christianity, it's it's its its birth point, if you like. Mm. It, you, you have no Christianity without without the church. Um, we should just say, uh, for, for those listeners who don't know, in, in our New Testaments, the, the word that gets translated as church is the Greek word ecclesia, um, which in the Greek world, it, it just means the gathering. Uh, but in particularly in the Greek world of uh, Greek city-states, it was the term that was used it, uh, to apply to the gathering of citizens, uh, which was an assent or the assembly of citizens, which was part of their political structures. That is the, the term ecclesia was part of the body politic. It was a political thing where that, where citizens, and that was male free citizens in Greek city-states, gathered to deliberate over, uh, you know, how they made decisions and and what what was good for their city and uh, and those sorts of things. Mm, But it seems like it must have taken on at least a wider meaning than that by the time of the New Testament, because it's not just Greeks and it's not just men and it's not just free people gathering, right? That's right. So, it, but it, it denotes a, a gathering of deliberation of some sort, where people are coming together right. with with purpose, if you like. Yeah. Uh, and so that's the term that the New Testament uh, writers take on to talk about uh, this group of c- Christians. So, at their sense, they are simply those who are being gathered. Uh, and the first really essential thing to say about the church. <laughs> is that it is the gathering of those who have been uh, brought together, who have been gathered by the Holy Spirit. So the the great uh, story in the book of Acts that we really see as the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2 is the the story of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is poured out uh, like tongues of fire upon the believers. Um, And that is quite rightly where we see... uh, the church being born and having its roots. And so at its heart uh, and its fundamental uh, 
uh, at its core, what, what the church is, in a theological sense, the gathering that the New Testament speaks of is the community of the Holy Spirit. Those who, the gathering of those who have received the Spirit of Christ, because that's how the New Testament talks about the Holy Spirit as explicitly the Spirit of Jesus. Uh, and it's it's the gathering of those who uh, have been captured by the Spirit of Christ and the New Testament talks about them being in Christ or talks about them being the body of Christ. So those, the plural, the, the assembly of people who have the Spirit of Christ become Christ's body in the world. Uh, and in a way they become, uh, they continue the process of word becoming fresh, uh, flesh of the, this uh, process of incarnation that God's spirit uh, seems to do in the world again and again. Um, so it's a, it's fundamentally a community of the spirit. And because it's the community of the spirit of Jesus, uh, bringing all with Jesus's character and personality, who Jesus is and what he was about, that, that the second critical point to say is that that was the community of reconciliation so it was the community in which we can say uh in one way that the work of Cain is being undone in so um one way that Paul talks about Jesus in the New Testament is as the second Adam as that is like humanity 2.0 and in fact in in mm. the book of Ephesians in chapter 2 Paul talks about the church is as being a community of the new humanity. That is uh, the humanity that is being recreated uh, uh, to undo the work of Cain, uh, the, the second Adam. Uh, and it's a work that is bringing a restoration to all the things that have been broken in the first Adam. Uh, and they're the recon reconciliation of the broken relationships, obviously think the broken relationships with God. But all the broken relationships between humans, and and if we think about that term, the second Adam, and in Genesis chapter two, Adam is specifically given the vocation of caring for the earth, and and in chapter three, that's a relationship that is fractured, that that also is part of the the relationships that is being put back together, being healed and reconciled in this new humanity. They're 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 like the uh, what humanity is to be in the in the purposes of God, uh, and if you like, the church is simply the gathering of those people who are who are getting a taste of that. They're the foretaste of of what is coming. Uh, and you know, the language of the New Testament is it's uh, the new the new Jerusalem or the kingdom of God. These are the the visions of of the the restoration of all things that are coming. And what we're seeing in this funny little gathering of people. Is the very beginnings of a foretaste of that reconciliation. It's meant, it's meant happening amongst them, and that's actually what what we see happening in the uh, in the the New Testament. We see happening in in the early church as well. Um, mm, all these little people doing something in some backwater of the empire. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And it's it sometimes feels like that today as well. It's like all these weirdos and misfits gathered together to do something that's not entirely obvious that anything's really happening often under the radar that's right but because it's a community of, of reconciliation that means by definition also it's a community with work to do uh jesus kept in particularly in john's gospels is talking about the work that he's been given to do and it's the work of of reconciliation 
and Emil Brunner put it, uh, the German theologian put it well when he said the church exists uh, by mission, just as a fire does by burning. And you know, a, a, so this is another component of what is central to in the New Testament idea, what this gathering is and what it's for. It's a it's a it's a a group that is um, it's called to be different from the world and and separate from the world in one sense, but it's actually called to be separate from from the world to be for the world to serve the mm. world uh, for that very specific purpose. So, look, I think they're the big things to to really say about who the church is. It's the community of the Holy Spirit. It's the community of reconciliation. It's and that means it's a community of with work to do in the world. But probably the final thing we need to say about it that is the reality that the church is, and this is present in the in the New Testament, uh, that it's both holy and sinful. Mm. Um, so the church is, and it's holy, and that word is related to the word wholeness. It's being, uh, it shares in the character of God, but not by any virtue of its own or any status that's been given, not by any merit, but simply because it, it participates in Christ. It's an by by sheer grace. Uh, in the same way that any one of us, and so Paul refers to the individual Christians as you holy, and that's the, the word saints. He talks about the saints. Uh, that simply means the holy. He's not saying that these people are all like holier than thou goody, goody two-shoes, <laughs> but he's simply pointing out you are in Christ and because, because you're in Christ, you are being touched by holiness. Yeah, and if you look at the communities he's saying that to, sometimes you think it's very much a, a theological conviction rather than an evidential observation. Exactly. And so in, in it's only in that sense that we can talk of the church as being holy, not as in its in its worst points in history when the church has thought of itself as holy, almost as this status that it owns in and of itself. Uh, mm. Because at its best points, the uh, church leaders and Christian theologians have always understood the church always to be also sinful because human. Uh, and although the work of the second Adam is, is beginning in this funny little gathering of people, it's not complete and we won't see it complete till uh, till a final day. And that's very much the pain that a lot of us experience in the church gathering that pain of the incompletion, the pain of that sin still being very much present. And yes. Very much yes. felt week by week or day by day. The not yet. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, look, all, all of those things, I mean, what those mean about the church is that it's fun, what it's called to be uh, and uh, when it is being what it is called to be when it is come the closer it is coming into Christ and the clo- the more it is a community of the Holy Spirit these things always take place it's a place where relationships change uh, where the relationships between people and God change they uh, obviously people are restored being restored to God but it's when particularly relationships between humans change so we see in the New Testament and we see especially in the life of the early church the breakdown of all sorts of forms of social distinction and division around gender, race, wealth, and status. They never go completely. It's never been free of those. But um, look, the the, 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 the historical records show that the, uh, 
early Christianity overcame those things to an extent that was just scandalous to the rest of the ancient world around them. The extent to by which they overcome distinctions of class and of ethnicity and even of, of gender as well. Um, and it's the place where we begin to see the root of. Um, so today, you know, we, we very easily think of uh, of a universal humanity. Well, well, that that idea was um, was just not simply an idea at all in most of the ancient world. It, it actually find, begins to find its real first expression in early Christianity within the church. The idea that this place where there is neither Jew nor Greek, that is no uh, recognition of uh, ethnicity or language or culture that divides us. There's uh, neither slave nor free, no form of social status that divides us, nor male nor female, no form of gender that divides us, that we're all one in Christ. Uh, there's this, the fundamental unity of humanity in Christ. Hmm. So that that is central to it. And, and so that meant necessarily that uh, because it was a place of change for relationships that it was an economic community where where people's relationships around money because that's one of the the core determinants of how we relate to each other that all changed and that was also a big part of the early church historian and we will have to do a podcast just (laughs) just on that um yeah certainly uh maybe just like we talked about some pretty big categories and some broad brushstrokes just to finish could you maybe give us, if it's a community of the Holy Spirit, it's a community of reconciliation, what are some practical on-the-ground things that's meant for people, perhaps in history, as well as what does that potentially mean for us in our context now? Sure. Um, look, uh, again, there's so much we could say uh, what that has meant through history. And uh, it has never been fully abandoned, although people may have seen some of those elements of Christianity submerged. They've always been present in one form or another. Uh, so I've already mentioned, um, look, in the early church, we have really strong and powerful forms of economic community that were actually central to the evangelical success of the early church, the extent to which they were an economic community, a, a, a community of material sharing uh, explains why they were so successful under the conditions of persecution in the Roman Empire. Hmm. It's a community in which we begin to see, uh, despite the frustration of many people that the New Testament doesn't say you must end slavery, actually the all the implications of New Testament teaching and what we begin to see happening uh, in the life of the early church is the beginning of the end of slavery, if you like. Hmm. Because once you start to... Uh, to work through the implications of the teachings of Jesus and of Paul, uh, slavery becomes untenable. Uh, And Mm. that's what we see uh, beginning to happen in the early church. Uh, It's where we see the beginning of uh, what we would call social welfare. Uh, So uh, the the structures and institutions for caring for the sick, the outcast, the lonely, the marginalized, the poor, all of these things we take for granted, these have their foundations in the church. Uh, and not just the early church, they were developed uh, strongly through uh, Christendom. Uh, hospitals, uh, these institutions which we quite rightly value and are central to our culture, were born out of Christendom. Uh, the university was born out of Christendom, all of these things. Um, right through, you know, I think we could trace even... Uh, 
uh, things like the modern welfare system and foreign aid all have their roots back in in the innovations of of the church. Mm. Well, that cross in the Red Cross isn't a cross by accident. Exactly. Yes. Even yeah. if it's become a secular institution. So look, uh, we could say that. Th- th- I think there's always been a golden thread through uh, through the history of the church uh, because precisely because because it is the community of the spirit and the Holy Spirit has never stopped being present. There has always been this counter history that, uh, if you like, wells up against some of the, the worst parts of the official history of the church. So there's always when the church has uh, had its worst moments and turned bad at various times, there have always been counter movements within it that have uh, turned or uh, turned back, if you like. Uh, so we see that from the from right about the turning of uh, the the Constantinian times with the the growth birth of the monastic movement, which was partly a reaction to the wealth and power of the church. In hmm. the, the high Middle Ages, when the, when popes were at the most corrupt, um, we saw the birth of the mendicant friars. Uh, these uh, the poor. Um, Poor monks who who didn't have monasteries but walked around uh, and owned no possessions uh, and and preached a radical gospel. We've seen amongst groups like the Lollards in England and some of the Anabaptists and the Reformers, uh, the the Levellers. Later on, the, the the Methodists or the Christian Socialists, worker priests, the Latin American based communities, the radical discipleship movement in Australia. <laughs> The list goes on of of these upwellings of the Holy Spirit where people are again and again tapping into the message of Jesus and challenging and changing things again. Uh, and and that is the, the counter history of the church that has always been present and it's, it's still there today. Mm. So, yeah, bringing it to today, what do you think people can do to tap into that perhaps more than they they already are? What are some... What are some key points or a key direction do you think to sketch for people in our context yeah well that's a really big question look i, I <laughs> <laughs> look i think actually that it's a big question but actually i think the answer is, is to some extent quite simple uh, and it's not to look for or to imagine we need although it would be nice that we need some large scale institutional uh, reform of the church uh, that's not the place to be looking for for hope that you know we're waiting for all of these different denominations to get their act together and uh and make some big you know institutional changes for the better uh those things can and hopefully will and might happen uh but actually for for people like you and me and people listening to the, the this podcast really the core work of a hopeful Christian vision is to be found in local communities. Uh, And it's the beginning again, as again and again, Christians through the last 2000 years have had to do again and again, is to relearn what it means to be called into reconciliation with God and with each other. And to begin to explore that in our relationships, in our communities, how we gather, that is church. (laughs) How whatever whether that's part of your your formal local church or whether that's part of an informal group that you're part of where people gather to worship Jesus essentially I mean and there are different ways we gather but to really to remember and to remind ourselves of the the full worth that is in Christ uh, that that those things require us to explore all sorts of different parts of our lives our economic lives how we relate to each other. 
our social lives, um, how we think about work and time, uh, how how we live in relation to our neighbours who uh, don't share our faith, uh, all of those things. Um, so it, it's a work of building a shared life of a, a common life. The, the Greek word koinonia for community means uh, really uh, holding things in common. Uh, so whether that be prayer and study of the Bible and worship, but also more solid things like uh, uh, sharing some economic stuff, shared work, uh, sharing our how we inhabit our lo- local places more, hmm. and being communities where we share a common vision of of what it means to be a people of reconciliation in this place. What what it might mean God's work of healing and restoring broken things might look like here. What it mean what it might mean in this place to begin to heal and to restore social divisions or what it might mean in this place to begin to restore and heal the earth uh, in this, this this tiny little part of the uh, of the the planet that we find ourselves in i reckon mm. there's some places to start great yeah <laughs> fantastic <laughs> and i'm sure we'll have much to explore in future episodes about uh what more of those things could look like uh Cool. Thank you, Jonathan. I think that's well enough to be getting on with for this episode. I, I think we've got a bit of, bit of work to be getting on with there, <laughs> don't we? Yeah. Thanks for listening, <laughs> folks. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it and we hope that it sparked something for you. If you want more good news economics in the meantime, between episodes and during the year, check out Mana Matters. Mana Matters is the quarterly publication of Managum. It's available for free online at managum.org.au and you can also get it by post for free. Uh, just go on the same website, managum.org.au, and sign up saying you'd like the hard copy. Jonathan's actually a really big fan of the hard copy. You might not think so, but uh, we really love the engagement that a physical object brings to uh, to the reading experience, so don't be afraid to sign up for the hard copy if that's what you'd prefer. Amen. Um, <laughs> Managum is also a ministry funded entirely by donations of people like you, perhaps, listening. And if you'd like to support the work that we do, that same website is the place to go, managum.org.au. There's a button near the top that says become a supporter. Many thanks to all of you who already support us doing this kind of thing. We'll leave you for this episode with a quote from a English anchoress, which was a type of very strict monk or nun uh, during the Middle Ages. She was English and she was called Julian of Norwich. And she says that God said to her this, and it's sort of in the context of all these things that can be overwhelmingly bad, particularly in the Christian community. How, how did God speak to her to think about all the, all the woes of the world? And she said, for since I, that's God, have made well the worst harm, then it is my will that thou knowest from that, that I shall make well everything that is less bad. Jonathan, thank you. Thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll catch you next time. Thank you, Jacob. Bye.